this whole belt is geographically cursed and when i say geographically uh, geographically cursed i mean is that uh, what happens during winter is that a whole depression gets formed over here which leads to a surge in air pollution This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Orad is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome everyone to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orad. I'm your host and your butterfly here. My special guest today is Hardik Siroha. Hardik is an assistant environmental engineer at Haryana State Pollution Control Board in India where he formulates and implements action plans to reduce environmental pollution, curb the use of plastic, as well as work on technologies to reduce water consumption of different industrial processes. If one wishes to understand his work in State Pollution Control Board, think of an engineer, federal agent, and a prosecutor rolled into one role. Welcome, Hardik, to The Butterfly Effect. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Thanks for that lovely introduction. So you're working in the field of environment, pollution control, and climate change. And you say it as a mix of engineer, federal agent, and prosecutor. What does it mean? What exactly do you do? <laughs> uh, well, I work in a regulatory authority. So just like in the USA, there is this environmental protection agency. So in India, we have the state uh, and central pollution control boards. Mm-hmm. What we are meant to do is that uh, we are meant to bring the environmental violators to the justice. We, we are there to check the environmental crimes. Other than the crimes related to wildlife and uh, the forest, all the other environmental crimes are dealt by us. So we are in a way an enforcement and regulatory body. Okay, so you're working with companies, the general public, government, all of them? Well, we kind of work with all of them. We work with industries to check their compliances. Uh, whether they are complying with the environmental norms or not. And uh, when it comes to general public, we try to get the policies implemented and uh, formulated in such a manner that the masses as a whole can uh, get, get access to a clean uh, and healthy environment. In Indian constitution, it is considered a part of right to life to have a clean environment, good quality water supply, mm-hmm. clean air to breathe in, living in a surrounding that is free from uh, any toxic uh, elements. So we, we try to make all this a reality along with balancing the economic needs of the nation. I see. So it's, it's interesting that it's in the Constitution, yet uh, as far as I know, there is a big pollution uh, problem in the India, right? Statistics are in air, in water, in plastic, right? It's, it's horrible. So how, how do you handle it? What's, or maybe we can start with just statistics that you want to share and then we can dive into how it's done. If you look at it, the northern India, which includes our capital, New Delhi, and uh, mm-hmm. the other cities in the vicinity, they are uh, one of the most polluted uh, areas in India. And uh, the issue is that this whole belt is geographically cursed. And when I say geographically, uh, geographically cursed, I mean is that uh, what happens during winter is that a whole depression gets formed over here, 
which leads to a surge in air pollution. Uh, I mean, it's like uh, think of a sink that has been choked and uh, you're constantly adding more water to it. And it, it, it's just going to make things worse. It's like a mix of weather conditions, urban emissions and ruler smoke that converge over this uh, northern part of India and gives rise to this terrible gas chamber. Mm-hmm. There are some statistics which say that w- when it is at its worst, it can be equivalent to smoking 50 cigarettes in a day. Oh my God. It's responsible for around uh, 1.2 million premature deaths. I mean, that, that's I think this is studied by this Lancet Commission. Air quality is a function of pollution and dilution. It's like how much is emitted and how, how much it spreads out. And what happens during the winter months, especially from October and November, that there's a lo- lot of addition, but the dilution gets uh, really, really low. And that, that, that's more like the uh, background and uh, the uh, geography of this whole situation. Was it always like that? No, I mean, if you look at it, it, it this whole situation arose because uh, we took a step to address another environmental problem. There, there are two famous states in North India, Haryana, to which I belong to, and Punjab. Mm-hmm. And they both are considered the rice basket of India. Uh, they, they are the uh, responsible for producing a lot of food grains, not only for India, but even uh, for exporting it to a lot of other nations. A uh, mm-hmm. lot of Gulf nations get their rice supply from India. Now, what happens is that rice is a water-intensive crop. Mm-hmm. And uh, what used to happen earlier is that uh, farmers used to pump out a lot of groundwater to cultivate and irrigate their rice. What happened is that we came up with this Punjab Preservation of Subsoil Water Act and Haryana Preservation of Subsoil Water Act in 2009. This Water Act prohibited nursery sowing before May, 10th of May and transplanting before 10th of June. So if you look at the process of growing of rice, what happens is that first you sow it in a nursery and from nursery it, it is transported into your fields. This Act put a prohibition that before 10th of June you can't do the transplanting. And the reason was that uh, around June the monsoon uh, hits in northern India and you don't need to pump out this huge quantum of groundwater. Now, what started happening is that we started conserving uh, groundwater. But the farmers in India, once they cultivate their rice, they have to sow the wheat. And uh, what started happening is that the period which was left for cultivation of rice and sowing of wheat, uh, that period got reduced because we have made it mandatory that you can't transplant the paddy before 10th of June. Mm-hmm. So... Farmers started burning the residue because they didn't have enough uh, resources to ensure that this uh, rice residue can be uh, managed in an environmentally friendly manner. So this gave rise to this problem of trouble burning in India, Mm -hmm. the uh, farm fires, which is, uh, is infamously known as. If you look at it, things started becoming way worse since 2009 and 10 when this act came up. So it's like uh, one uh, one solution gave rise to another problem. Right, right. Oh my God. So, what are the suggestions on on fixing it? Uh, well, what we have done now is that uh, around two years back we came up with this uh, new uh, regulatory body called 
Commission for uh, Air Quality Management for Delhi uh, and National Capital Region. So it's mm-hmm. a most powerful air quality body uh, in the history of India. And what it does is that it is meant specifically to look into the issues of air pollution for this Delhi and the nearby regions. And uh, we have also prepared a graded response action plan. We call it GRAP. So GRAP is like a climate emergency. And what we do now is that we take data from meteorological department. And uh, we uh, we usually see that, okay, this is the time when uh, the wind velocity is going to fall. This is the time when we can expect a concentration of pollutant. And before that situation arises, we have started taking preemptive measures. Uh, for example, we put a ban on the construction when it is needed. We ensure that uh, uh, the schools and the uh, private offices remains closed. They f- function in a remote manner if need be. Mm-hmm. Along with that, if need be, we also put a restriction on the uh, operation of the industries. Last year, we put uh, this kind of like rationalizing quota on the industries that you can uh, function on these particular days of the week and that too in this particular duration. Along with that, uh, there's a restriction on the uses of uh, diesel vehicles. So these are kind of like a multi-pronged approach which we take to address this in the severe winter months. And to tackle the issue of stubble burning, we have come up with various uh, carrot and stick approach. Uh, we have tried to give incentives to the farmers to ensure that their residue of the rice is used in eco-friendly manner. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the stubble which is left post-harvesting of rice can be used as a fuel in the industries. And now uh, the Ministry of Power in, in India has come up with this new scheme where uh, in the thermal power plants, which tends to use coal to produce electricity, now, what they do is that they add 5 to 10% of the these biomasses to the coal. Mm-hmm. What they do is yeah. that um, they, convert, they crush the coal and they mix it with this biomass. So, what this ensures is that this stubble can be used to produce energy. And um, if you look at the engineering aspect without going into too many technical details, we have seen that we can add 5 to 10% of the biomass, uh, this stubble, to the uh, boilers without any technical modification. Along with the same, uh, recently the Honorable Prime Minister of India, Mr. Narendra Modi, also inaugurated an ethanol plant, uh, which will be making ethanol from stubble. So we are trying to ensure that this agro residue can be used to generate electricity and uh, give uh, a push to the development rather than act as a deterrent by uh, causing massive air pollution. So these are some of the frameworks which we are taking right now. This is incredible. So I, I love the concept of um, the agro residue. And I'm just curious, do you see it being implemented in other countries? We are completely phasing out uh, uses of coal uh, from the end of this year. So in North India, the national capital region, coal will not be used after 31st of December. Mm-hmm. This will also ensure that the, the local industries also go for this adoption of biomass and agro-residue. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it comes to the adoption of agro-residue in the other world, uh, it, it, it can easily be done provided you have a good logistic system. The main problem is that um, in India, the farmers are not very rich. Some of them have very small land holdings. But when we compare it to the farmers of Europe and the USA, especially the Western Europe, the average land holding size is rather big. So it will be even easier to implement in the, it, it in those countries as compared to India. 
uh, we just mm-hmm. need uh, some political will and uh, willingness to uh, go against these coal mafia so what are the obstacles that you currently seeing in actually implementing that we also have to pull pull millions out of poverty while ensuring that our environment remains clean so this go, this sustainable development this balancing uh, also causes a major problem for a nation like us and uh, w- w- when you talk about uh, this the this logistics mechanism as i was telling you that in india the average land holding size with a farmer is rather less as compared to usa and western europe so the logistics mm-hmm. always remain a problem that how are you supposed to ensure that that stubble from the f- uh, farmer's farm is collected channelized and sent to the industry so right now we are trying to work more and also in a non in a non polluted way as well yeah, right exactly so, we yeah. have some uh, these machines called harvesters available so what they do is that uh, they cut cut that paddy straw and they convert it into these rectangular bales which can easily be transported but since a lot, lot of farmers grow rice and it is to be cultivated in a very narrow period so uh, this this uh, the availability of those balers uh, usually leads to a problem you just said rice and all of them grow rice i'm just thinking it's in a way very monoculture um crop that is done all across india are there any other problems with i don't know food shortage because there's just rice or no how well uh, in india we have two cropping cycles one is called the rabi crop which is the wheat and the other is called the kharif crop that is the rice mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. in winter's time this rice is cultivated in summer's time the wheat is cultivated and the reasons farmers prefer to do is to be indulged in these two crops is cause they both yield good returns they have a nice market and uh, they are easier to cultivate and manage as compared to the other horticulture crops other uh, let's say vegetables and uh, fruit based crops so right. and you don't like, see a degradation to the soil because of that because it's just monoculture Uh, well uh, to be very honest with you Terry uh, as such rice is not meant to be grown in northern part of india because rice is a water guzzling crop uh, it is mm-hmm. said that um, uh, to produce 1 kg of rice you need to use 3500 to 5000 liters of water and most of this right. water is uh, coming from uh, uh, underground it's a ground water so that has also led to severe decline in the ground water tables uh what happened is that during 1970s and 80s when india was going through a food crisis the government came up with something known as green revolution so green revolution was meant to provide uh, better irrigation facilities to the farmers equip them with uh, state of the art technologies and uh, provide them electricity at a subsidized rate so mm-hmm. th- this uh, phenomenon in 1970s and 80s what they did is that it made india a food surplus nation but it came up with this whole uh, set of challenges which we are seeing right now as such rice is not even meant to be grown in northern part of india this 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 area is not conducive to the growth of rice rice is always meant to be grown in the areas where you have a very good and regular monsoon so this is a behavior problem that, that we are trying to change right now what type of 
change are you looking at? Uh, what we are trying to do is that uh, there is a whole program of crop diversification where farmers are being incentivized to go for horticulture-based crops like tomatoes, like mm-hmm. um, other fruits, rather than going for the rice. They are even being uh, given some uh, incentives, some cash incentives to go for that. Uh, but as I was telling you, that an average farmer in India is rather poor, and um, it, it it becomes really difficult to uh, do this whole mindset change with them. So that always becomes a big problem. If if you try to crack down too hard, uh, it can always backfire because people right. think that you are trying to control their choices. So there's this very uh, dicey spot which you have to operate in. Right. Okay. So we touched on air. which touch a little bit on water. There's another aspect to water, and that's polluted water in India, drinking water. And I'm just curious or interested to hear from you, um, what numbers are we talking about? What industries pollute most? And what are the things that you guys are doing in that term? Uh, well, if we talk about uh, the wastewater generation, uh, especially in India, we have two main rivers. One is uh, the Ganges, the Ganga, and mm-hmm. the other is Yamuna. And these are two very ancient rivers of India. Uh, you found a lot of reference to them in the scriptures also, in the religious text. If you talk about them, it is as per a report by 2016 by Central Pollution Control Board, Uh, the central agency which we report to, around 61,948 million liters of total sewage was generated. And out of that, only 23,277 million liters uh, per day was uh, treated in a proper manner. So if you look at it, we are talking about a gap of around 60 to 62% um, in the wastewater, which is not being uh, treated properly. And this is for the urban area. We don't have a proper data for rural areas. Right now. So 62% of the water that people are coming in contact with is polluted. Uh, no, no, not exactly that. What I need to mention is that if 62% is being discharged into the water bodies, the rivers, without the proper adequate treatment, which is what required. Uh, it's not like the, the, that is being consumed by the people directly, but in a way or another, or another it is polluting the oceans, uh, the seas, And the water bodies okay and uh, the government recently around uh, three years back came up with this uh, program called Jal's Shakti mission so the, the, the Jal is a Hindi word for water so what they try to do is that they try to provide a piped water supply to each and every household and this has been one of the most successful campaigns uh, of the of the Indian government. where we are trying to ensure that uh, it, even in the remotest part of the India, and India is a pretty geographically wide nation, uh, even in mm-hmm. remotest part, you have a piped water supply available to the people. What happens is that when you have uh, water coming through pipes, uh, through taps and faucet, you can always control the quality. You can ensure that proper chlorination, proper treatment is provided to the water before being supplied to it. So this is a major step in providing clean drinking water to the individuals. Along with that, what we are also trying to ensure is that the wastewater generation gets reduced. And uh, now we are trying to push industries to adopt a zero liquid discharge policy. Uh, when we talk about zero liquid discharge, what we mean is that 
no wastewater is discharged from the industry. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens is that an industry is equipped with effluent treatment plant. Uh, that is ETP, we call it, effluent treatment plants. So the effluent mm-hmm. that, that, that is generated in a process gets treated. So earlier what used to happen is that this treated effluent used to get discharged back into the water bodies. But now what we are trying to do is that that this, this treated effluent is further routed towards uh, through advanced technology and this effluent becomes so clean that you can again use it in your industrial process. Almost 80% of the freshwater consumption of the industries is being reduced through these technologies. What we do is that along with the treatment plant, we provide them with reverse osmosis, ultrafiltration, multi-stage reverse osmosis, which ensure that uh, the water gets treated to such an extent that you can uh, safely reuse it in the process. So I have two questions here. So one, does all companies apply? How about small uh, companies or individuals? Is it all? Because you you make it sound like it's, it's perfect and it's solved. Yet it's not, right? So we have the water that is still there is very much contaminated. And then, so yes, the new water can be treated. I'm just curious, are companies really adopting it? Yeah, I mean, that this costing is a, is a place where we need to work upon. Right now, we have the technology. This can easily be done. But it comes with a significant operating cost. Right. Now, what happens is that in India, we have a lot of this micro and small industries which find it difficult to achieve this zero liquid discharge. All the medium and large industries uh, of highly polluting nature are being made to comply with it. But the problem arises when the industries are of a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to ensure is that that they do a minimum level of treatment to the water, their wastewater. Uh, you can call it primary treatment. And from mm-hmm. there, we are taking it to a common effluent treatment plant where the further treatment is happening. So we are trying to achieve economy of scale by ensuring that a centralized treatment happens. This The cost comes down. And this also ensures that uh, the requisite uh, technological manpower is available. Because every industry can't afford to hire these highly paid scientists and engineers for the operation of the treatment plants. Right, right. And how about the water that is currently contaminated? Uh, the current contamination of water for this, what we are doing is that when we look at the figures, we saw that a lot of contamination is happening because of the domestic wastewater, the sewage water. Mm-hmm. So now what, what is being done is that uh, the tapping points are being increased. Uh, we are trying to ensure that every village uh, has got a proper sewer connection and all the wastewater is tapped and brought to the nearest sewage treatment plants. Where the sewage treatment plants are not available, we are going for this phytoremediation technique where we are using the plant and the nature-based solutions to make the water at least uh, more safe as compared to an untreated one. And they have been do- giving some pretty good results. I mean, they take a lot of uh, land, they take a lot of area, but they are doing some pretty amazing work. Uh, this phytoremediation, you can look at online also, the phytoremediation in India. I have been to some of these plants myself. And uh, what they do is that there is no machinery involved. We just use um, uh, plants like elephant grass. Uh, we just provide natural erection and settling. And uh, that is able to even improve the quality of wastewater to a significant extent. This is cool. So in a way, there is like a plantation made out of plants that purify the contaminated water. Yeah. 
Yeah, so why don't we see more of that? Uh, well, as I said, that it takes a lot of land. And when you have a uh, world's second largest population, uh, land always becomes a scarce resource. Mm-hmm. We are seeing this um, uh, vertical growth happening in all the metropolitan and urban centers of India. So the land is not something that is easily available. That's why we we can't just freely adopt this phytoremediation-based technique. But it is really good for the smaller cities and towns where land is available, especially the village areas. Right. So what is done in an area where there's no place for that? There we need to go for these uh, sequential batch reactors type sewage treatment plants. So they are this uh, latest technology where you try to reduce the land uses by twenty uh, by almost twenty five percent of the original one uh, by a new design where mm-hmm. the, the like it, it, when you try to treat sewage, there are different processes involved like aeration, decantation, settling. So what the sequential batch reactor does, just like the name says, sequential. So all these process happens in the same area in a sequence. Right. So earlier we used to need different uh, tanks, different uh, area uh, for aeration, for decantation. But now this all can be done in uh, in the same area, hence significantly reducing the amount of land needed. So this is the latest technology that is being up, uh, adopted for the treatment of sewage. I understand. Okay. Um, and then, obviously, this is not the only pollution problem in India or in the world. And the next one is plastic. How uh, bad? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you did, did talk about the plastic issue because uh, India recently banned a lot of single-use plastic items uh, from the nation. There have been this massive campaign going on where we are... Uh, launching a war on the plastics just like countries did with drugs okay so let's go with tell me how bad is it and then we'll talk about maybe what india is doing and and tell people what they can do so let's start with the problem uh, well if you talk about pro- uh, plastic i always say that plastic was the midas touch for for our civilization uh, when plastic came up we saw it being adopted everywhere Plastic is pretty magical. Magical. It can be easily molded into whichever form you want. It mm-hmm. can uh, be used to like uh, ensure that your food doesn't get wasted. I mean, I was looking at this study by Environmental Protection Agency of USA, which admitted that one third of the waste uh, food will get wasted if we were not having uh, plastic packaging. So. Okay. All the virtues that made plastic a good thing are all the, are the same ones which make it a curse. Um, uh, plastic is pretty resilient. It takes around 500 to 1,000 years to decompose. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at the amount of plastic that was created, uh, almost 70 to 80% of that still exists on the planet. We just can't get rid of it. We can just throw it. It will uh, not be in front of your eyes, but it will be there. Plastic, uh, it like, it's, it's like uh, it comes, but it never goes. It's like that Hotel right. California song. I mean, you, you, you can never actually leave. You can check out, but you can never leave. So, <laughs> and it, the, um, another issue is that of microplastic. The pieces which are less than 5 mm in size and which are used in cosmetics, toothpaste, mm-hmm. or when your floating plastic waste is exposed to UV radiation, uh, the ultraviolet radiation, it further crumbles down into smaller and smaller pieces. 
and uh, now it is said that even human blood has been found to have these microplastics they can be found in the deepest trenches even the mariana trench is uh, said to have been contaminated with these plastics so, so wait you said toothpaste in our toothpaste there is plastic. yeah a lot of pla- cosmetic toothpaste in fact a lot of cosmetics which we use on a daily basis tend to have these uh, plastic items so that's why i always recommend people that whenever you are shopping do check out for the ingredients what you are buying what you are putting into your into your body a lot of green washing happens uh, by these big multinational companies where they try to uh, push their products as eco friendly ones but if you look at the list of ingredients the story is something completely different so what what do we need to look for so it is always recommended that you should should not be using those small sachets that come up i don't know if they have those in us but in india what happens is that uh, the shampoo or the conditioner they also comes in these small disposable plastic sachets which are meant to be used and thrown away mm-hmm. so they this all these sachets they eventually heads to the landfills and the oceans once they are thrown up along with that uh, many of the products such as toothpaste and face wash they contain those micro beads that are sometimes uh, even inge- ingested during the use they also cannot be filtered so they are eventually released into the oceans so w- one should always try to uh, make it a habit to read the label carefully anything that contains words like polyethylene polypropylene or polystyrene uh, should be avoided for the health of individual as well as for the planet so whenever we see poly we should stay away yeah polyethylene polypropylene and polystyrene especially these three ones there is a problem of of plastic and single use plastic what are your thoughts on recycling whether it's plastic whether it's paper is it doing anything is it useful i mean i know i shouldn't ask it but i'm going to ask it anyway well when we talk about the recycling uh, the thing with single use plastic is that most of it as the name says is meant for single use that's why we first banned uh, the single use plastic in india uh, since first first of july a uh, lot of single use plastic items have been banned in india we came up with an amendment of our plastic waste management rules and uh, uh, all the plastic cutlery have been banned so you won't find all those plastic forks and uh, knives that were usually circulated in india along with that uh, even the thickness of the uh, plastic bag have been increased to 75 micron from 50 micron and from um, 1st january 2023 the pl- thickness of the bag will further be revised to 120 micron now someone might say what's the point of this uh, increasing the thickness well what happens mm-hmm. is that if if the plastic bag is too thin it is not of adequate thickness then it can't be reused multiple times you put, right. you put something heavy in it it might get torn and once it get torn it breaks away into all these smaller pieces which are eventually disposed of so we are trying to ensure that even if we can't do a complete phase out at least a planned phase out of the plastic is happening for uh, for the environment so i see a lot of um um compostable air quote right plastic bags what are your thoughts on that is that they are being adopted being adopted uh, since the ban came up but uh, i would still suggest that rather than going for these compostable ones it is always better to uh, stick with the uh, nature based alternatives like the cloth bags the jute bags um mm-hmm. 
or just carry your own backpack. I mean, um, I've seen this pretty much in during my travel in Europe. I don't know the situation in USA, uh, but even in India, we we need to adapt this up. That just carry a backpack with you. You don't need to take a any kind of um, plastic bag from the shop from a, any supermarket. A lot of Indian states right. are pretty good at adopting it. I mean, we don't need rocket science to save the planet. The solutions are available all around us. So rather than just going uh, exclusively upon research and development, we should just at times try to, I mean, uh, look at reinventing the wheel, just going back to the basics. Okay, so let's go about the basics. So what are, I don't know, three to five uh, tips or advice that you can give? People that you say are going back to the basics that they can apply to help our planet uh, well since we were, we were talking about plastic uh, let me like uh, dwell into some of the basics that can help you reduce your plastic wastage um, first of all uh, one should admit that plastic is pretty ubiquitous it is quite difficult to completely eliminate it but what we can do is that we can do a phased uh, elimination of plastic from our, of our lives, our daily lives. And for mm-hmm. that, uh, what we first of all need to do is that measure how much plastic we are using. Uh, it's like uh, auditing your waste. For a week, I would recommend all the listeners just to list out the items used by them which have plastic. You can use a Microsoft Excel sheet or you can just do it with a pen and a notebook. Yeah, like we track our food. Yeah, yeah just try to note down what kind of plastic you are using. I mean, it is said mm-hmm. that what gets measured gets done. So let us become conscious of what kind of plastic we are using. And once we have done this audit, we are we will see that uh, almost everything from our mobile phone to the diaper, which are being used by our kids, have plastic in them. And right. uh, now the next step is to do a phased elimination. We don't want to wipe out all the plastic, but we are tr- what we will do is that we will try to identify six to seven items which we can easily easily eliminate from our daily life. For example, the cloth diapers can be used instead of the plastic ones. Similarly, we can use a bamboo or a wooden toothbrush in the morning. So what I want people to do is that just for, for a week or 15 days, decide that the, these are the items which are, I'm going to eliminate for this, for this month or for this week and mm-hmm. try to increase this list in a convenient manner. Because just like weight loss, if we try to go all in, we try to say, okay, I'm not going to eat any of the ice creams or the dessert. It will become quite impossible. You are going to eventually uh, fall fall behind. So I want right. people to have realistic targets for them when they're trying to eliminate the plastic from their life. And um, okay. just using a backpack while tra- traveling can uh, save a lot of plastic uses. Yeah, or just a tote bag that is folding and you just put it in your purse. Yeah. And... Uh, we have already discussed about the um, uh, cosmetic industry. And what I will try to emphasize upon is also the fashion industry. Because if you look at it, the textile industry is one of the worst polluter on the planet. Right. I mean, uh, if, right from the production uh, to the disposal, the textile industry, the fashion industry generates a lot of pollutants. It is said that even the production of one kg of cotton takes about 10,000 to 20,000 liters of water. Wow. And um, since we have this concept like fast fashion entering our dictionary where the clothes are discarded uh, just after wearing them once or twice, I mm-hmm. mean, this all leads to this situation where companies are producing at, at a rampant scale. 
and if you look at it all the clothes have to be eventually uh, printed um, you get all those designs printed upon them and they have to be dyed and the dyeing industry the, the, the process of putting colors on your clothes this is one of the most grossly polluting process one can think of um, in, in, if, when you're dealing with the polluting industries so mm-hmm. i mean this fast fashion this rampant consumerism and materialism in the society uh, is wrecking havoc with the uh, generation of a lot of uh, unwanted uh, waste in the form of textile uh, and discarded clothing from previous episode i was talking to uh, a fashion sustainable designer um if if you're interested just check the old episode where i spoke with the shifali the hell so she talks about it and it's it really is interesting and i love that you bring it up again because it is important for us to think of what we consume and what we buy and i always tell even my kids stop for a second before you buy think do i really need it is it gonna serve me for more than 10 times and then then if so buy it Yeah, completely agree. That's really great and smart parenting from your end. I mean, if, if, when, when you catch the children young, I mean, it's easier to uh, make this a behavior with them rather than trying to mold it when, once they are adults. So, I mean, I always believe in catching them young. <laughs> so what is the one common myth in your field of tackling pollution that you want to debunk? Um, most people think that we are a bureaucratic hurdle to the development. Um, a lot of people think that um, we have more pressing problems rather than trying to I mean, address all these issues. But what I'd like to state is that if, if you try to put the economic implications of pollution and environmental degradation, they, they are just massive. I mean, if you look at this, all these flooding happenings, increase in sea level, just look at how many of the world's uh, most economic and financial powerhouses are coastal cities. Think of Miami, think of Florida. In India, think of mm-hmm. uh, places like uh, Mumbai, uh, mm-hmm. Chennai, Kolkata. They, they bring up a significant amount of India's um, gross domestic product, the revenues, the, the economic implications kind of economical impacts will be there if these cities are submerged tomorrow and going by the current rate it is quite possible that by 2050 we might be having a lot of our um, most wealthy cities underwater so i mean people tend to think of this prosperity versus pollution debate that if we are trying to save the environment we are going to lose on the uh, prosperity part but nothing can be further from the truth it's like driving a car with a flat tire you know that your tire is flat but you are saying oh no 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 i need to reach my destination fast i can't uh, pull the brake and change my tire but eventually that's going to catch up with you i mean <laughs> your car is going to get stopped and you're going to be late so that's what's going to happen if we um, keep moving at this current pace i mean we need to synchronize the development with sustainability although the concept of sustainable development came up uh, around i think in 70s and 80s i'm yet to see it being uh, adopted by the people in the latter in spirit are you hopeful Yeah, I'm quite hopeful. I mean, uh, since we talked about all those um, uh, solutions where you, you're using agro-residue as a tool to generate energy, I mean, they, they are all the practical manifestation of this concept of sustainable development where you are trying to move to a circular economy. Uh, so mm-hmm. I feel with the right technology, with the right research, we can uh, achieve what today we, 
just consider a science fiction thing. <laughs> I love it. Hardik, what is your favorite tree? My favorite tree? Uh, it has to be, uh, I, I don't know if it is growing in the USA, the neem tree. And why is that? I mean, if you look at it, I mean, this is a tree uh, that is like a perfect example of the nature's uh, um, ingenuity. Uh, it, it, it provides shades to the people. Its fruits and seeds are used uh, to cure various ailments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is known for its drought resistance. It can thrive even in the subarid and subhumid conditions. A lot of, uh, I mean, uh, the, 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 it is said that there is no part of this tree which goes waste. Right from root, shoot, leaves, stems, everything is used for some purpose. Uh, it is used for pesticide management. It is used in the, the field of traditional medicines. Uh, it is used to make raisins. Um, yeah, it is used to, I think, manufacturing of fertilizer also. It is used in animal feed. So, I mean, if, if you look at it, this is something which nature, uh, through which nature tried to show us that that's how you humans are meant to go for a circular economy, that nothing is supposed to yeah. uh, go to waste. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Hardik, for joining me today. and. And for your very, very important work on basically caring for the livelihood of the people of India. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you, everyone, for joining me today. We are all beautiful butterflies, each in his and her individual ways. I wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey with me, and I hope you can join me next time. And remember... It only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change. 